0: Hey guys and girls and Eric. Um, it, go ahead and grab a seat and we're going to talk for a little bit. And I got to go ahead and tell you, this is this is absolutely one of my favorite Bible stories there is. And so um, we're not actually going to talk about as, well, we're going to talk about it a little bit. But we're not going to focus on, on the parts that make it my favorite Bible st- story. I'm just going to tell you, as a youth minister for 20 years... Anytime the Bible is gross, I absolutely love it. I I just, I'm, we read this this book and forget that it was an ancient Near Eastern uh, book. And so we we read it with with 21st century ears, not realizing uh, that it, even though we have a modern translation, it is still at its core a a first century book, uh, even with a translation. It's, it's the equivalent of, of reading um, a Shakespearean play in modern language. It's still, that helps, but what helps the most is actually watching the play. To just read a modern version of Shakespeare helps you to get some of it. There's so much humor in the Bible that, that we don't get. Jesus actually makes a lot of statements that are quite funny. Um, the story we're about to, to read is, is satirical. Um, what is what is Satire. Making fun of something or someone. And this is literally making fun of of someone. Um, but it's making fun of someone for a purpose. There's just pure satire that is just let me mock so and so. There's, and there's satire that is meant to be I'm going to mock this because it's stupid. Or I'm going to mock this to point out how it was thought to be uh, really impressive. But instead it's not. Uh, one of my my personal favorites is *A Modest Proposal* by Jonathan Swift. Uh, if if you've ever read *Gulliver's, Gulliver's, <laughs> Gulliver's Travels*, uh, he also wrote a book called, uh, mon, or excuse me, wrote a small essay called *A Modest Proposal* which is a satire of, of the way the British were dealing with the poor at the time because he talks about how the poor are everywhere and there's a food shortage, so what we should do instead is just sell the babies for food source. It's rather disgusting when you think about it, but he writes it in a very formal way, so it comes across as though it's a real proposal. What we're about to read is just drenched in satire. It was meant to, uh, to be humorous. Uh, we would laugh at it, but a, an ancient Near Eastern Jew and this is not even first century, this actually is probably close to about 600 B.C. when they would have been reading this, Um, they would have just thought this was the most hilarious thing ever. And it would have been funny and uplifting at the exact same time. So uh, Noah's going to operate this for me in the back, and we're going to turn in our Bibles, and hopefully you brought your own, but if not, there are tapestry Bibles around you, and we're all family here, so you all know that. Um, But we're going to turn to the third chapter of the book of Judges. And this is what I would like to encourage you to do. Since I'm not going verse by verse on this, uh, but I'm trying to hit the main stories because Judges repeats itself over and over and over and over again. That's a very Jewish thing to do. Um, I'm hitting some of the highlights on it. What I would encourage you to do is read through it. You can read the entire book of Judges in about 84 to 90 minutes, uh, depending on, on how fast a reader you are. Um, I'm going to tell you each week what I will be doing. I put it all over Facebook and put it on my blog and put it on the church website, what we would be reading this week. Um, So I would encourage you, go back and read the first three chapters um, to kind of set the stage a little bit. So uh, in the Tapestry Bibles, it's page 171 and uh, 72. This is what it says, starting at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to start again, but I want you to have that phrase in your mind because it happens almost 13 times in the book of Judges. There's seven different stories about Judges, possibly eight, uh, and this phrase happens as a part of almost every one of them. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this, uh, this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is just right around Jericho. Um, The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Girah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon had made a double-edged, excuse me, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to to King Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on on their way the men who had carried it. At, At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said quiet and all of his attendants left him ehud then uh, then approached uh, him with well, excuse me then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said i have a message from god for you as the king rose from his seat ehud reached with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. Uh, when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, uh, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan uh, that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. So, let's hope this thing works. It worked earlier. Tonight... What we're going to be talking about is, is PG-13. And to be completely honest, if this was a movie, uh, a lot of Scripture literally would be R. There there are, uh, if you watch certain movies, when they try to show what is described in Scripture, it is it would get an R rating. Uh, King David is a very graphic story, and yet we tell it to children all the time. If you think about the way we trivialize God, it's amazing. I mean, in, in nurseries, what is one of the favorite Bible stories. Noah's Ark. Now think about Noah's Ark. And we trivialize it to where it's this wonderful little story. But it's a story of, of God's judgment and God's rescue at the exact same time. And if we really tell the story the way it is and really think about the words, it is horrific. It's so funny to me the way we take the Bible and we turn it into this nice little clean book. When it is so far from that. It is, it is challenging, it is graphic, it is horrific, it is confusing. A lot like God, to be completely honest. Now, I put these words in, it is for graphic violence, scatological humor, and possible secu- sexual innuendo. That's because, I'm going to point out one thing here, when, when I just read this, I don't think any of you went, huh, that sounds sexual. It's because the very same thing that is, is possibly a crap joke here, could be referenced as a, a sexual joke at the exact same time. It is most likely, truthfully, a reference to him using the restroom, but it could be a reference to uh, him being sexual in some way or another. So I'm going to share that. We'll talk about it. Let's talk about this, though. What this is happening from is is... This, and this is known as uh, the uh, cycle of Judges. It happens over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Everything's going great. The people forget God and serve the Baals. Just think like this. Amnesia equals apostasy. When we forget, we tend to become apostate. In other words, we, we forget what God has done and we begin to live in ways that do not depend upon Him. That is not just true of Israel, that is true of us also. Uh, Amnesia is our worst enemy. It is not weakness. It is is not a lack of resources. Our worst enemy is that we forget. Because we have a God who has all the resources that are necessary. Has all the power that is necessary. And we forget what he's done in our own lives. We forget what we have seen him do in other people's lives. We forget the miracles that we have seen him do. And therefore we begin to think that he can't do them through us. So they forget Uh, That God had taken care of them and then they begin to serve the Baals. They begin to serve other gods. And typically in the book of Judges, it's either Baal or Asherah who are actually a part of the same uh, deity. The irony is most of these Baals, and the reason it's plural, they're different. The Ammonites served one Baal, the Moabites served another Baal. Yes, they were related, but they're different. Think uh, Zeus and Apollos, same but different. Make sense? So um, they serve the Baals. God sends an oppressor. Now, I, I drew God as, with angry there. And God does not look like that. Please, I hope you know that. Um, but I drew God angry there for a specific reason. We tend to think of God's anger and his love as being different. But God gets angry because he is loving. If you think of this with, with the two analogies that we, we so often see in Scripture for God's relationship with us, it makes perfect sense. Those two analogies are uh, God and his people as a marriage and God and his people as a, a um, father and his children. I was thinking about using Charlie for this, but, but I decided not to. No, it was, I, I actually thought Charlie would love being up here, but I think then it would possibly quite co- cause problems because he would get nervous while he was up here. And then when he got back there, I actually thought, well, he'll just get super excited that he was up here. (laughs) So he wouldn't do anything up here. And then back there, you wouldn't be able to control him. And I just thought, oh, this could be terrible. But if the Holties saw Charlie hitting Janie, and they did absolutely nothing about it, is that a loving act? No, it's a terrible act. It's an awful act. If they saw uh, Charlie uh, hitting Janie, and they got mad at him, is that a loving act? Y- yes, are they angry? Well yes, their anger comes out of their love. not just their love for Janie but their love for Charlie also. Uh, take Pam and I if if uh, I had an affair, which I have not okay <laughs> But if I had an affair and Pam went, that's okay. You know it just happens. That's not a loving act that means our relationship there's nothing there. See, anger in a relationship can be a terrible thing, but the lack of anger in a relationship can be a terrible thing. There are actions that require anger. God is angry, and it's not just because He's some vengeful God that's just like, I just hate this. No, He's angry because the people have cheated on Him. Think adultery, and you'll begin to understand it. So God gets angry, and that anger comes out of his love. He literally, he is faithful in his love, and because of that, he is faithful in his anger. They come out of the same place. So, uh, the people cry out, Yahweh. Now, this is interesting, because the words that are used there, it does not mean they repent. It means they cry out in pain, and God hears their pain. Sometimes they repent, sometimes they don't. They just cry out. Again, think a kid. If... um. Adam's not here, so I'll use Adam instead of Noah. Okay, but it, holy moly! <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Is that you? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you might not. You might want to pull the cap off now because I think I have just walked on it, and there's no telling what's on my feet. Um, and I, I actually I've been in the hospital today, so you definitely don't want to drink from that. Um, so, if Adam. Um, my word i just blanked <laughs> there we go okay if adam was like hey dad i want to touch the stove while it's hot and i'm like dad don't or adam don't do that that's stupid he's like no i want to do it i want to touch the stove while it's hurt hot and and i was like don't do that and he, he just reaches over and he turns the flame on and he puts his hand in and he starts to cry out am i going to help him only if he's like dad i'm terribly sorry that i disobeyed you i repent of my action No, I'm going to help him the second he's like, oh! It's not going to be like, now, hey, before I take you to the hospital, I need to tell you how stupid that was. Now, that's going to happen later, okay? (laughs) But I'm not responding just because he finally goes, Dad, you're right, you're always right. I should have remembered that. I'm going to respond to his pain, and that's what God is doing here. So... People cry out to Yahweh. God sends a judge through whom he will deliver his people. We talked about this last week. The judges are deliverers. Think the word savior most of the time rather than what we think of as a modern judge. But um, it's military savior most of the time. Uh, the people are freed from their oppression. Everything is okay. And it repeats over and over. And God is loving all the time. Please notice, I didn't say God is angry, God is loving. It's like God is happy, God is angry. They both come out of the same place. His love is, is such that he gets ticked off when there's betrayal, as he should. So, that's what's happening here, and hopefully you noticed a little bit of that in this one story. It happened just prior to this, in the first judge, whose name is Othniel, uh, he's a little rather boring, he's also the uh, nicest judge in the whole story. The judges, we like to think of biblical heroes as being great guys and great ladies, and quite often they're not. Othniel is uh, a great guy, and he also is the one who fights the most powerful enemy. Most of these other, other enemies are, are tribal people who move in because Israel has come into a land that was composed of tribal people and he's, they've kicked them out. And these other people just slowly come in and out and in, and in and out. Othniel is the only one who actually fights an empire. Most of the rest of these uh, people are small people that move into a certain area. Moab. That's what they did. If you notice he had to use the Ammonites and the Amalekites to, to actually come in and do this. He wasn't a very powerful king in the sense of the world. He was just big enough to uh, beat up the Israelites. So let's talk. This is what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab over, uh, over, excuse me, gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Why did Eglon gain power? No, it seems like that. Because of this. But that is why God did this. Eglon gained power because God gave him power. Do you understand why I'm being picky on that? Yes, the Israelites did it. But this is not a math problem to where Israel disobeys God, Eglon gains power. If it was a math problem, it would be Israel disobeys God. God gives Eglon power. There's a huge difference between that. See, God is using Eglon as his force. We so often forget that God can use both the good and the bad to accomplish his will. He does it over and over again. God does not do evil acts, but he definitely allows them every now and then. That, that is not something that I fully comprehend. It is definitely not something that I like. But but the evil that is in this world, God could stop it. I believe it with all my heart. I don't understand why he doesn't quite often. But I know that his goodness is good enough to not just make something good that happens from uh, from it, but to transform it. The most evil acts in the world, I believe God can take that and transform it. To make it, not to where that act is good, but where good is constantly flowing out of it. See, that's the reason I I point out, how did he get power? He got power because God gave it to him. It wasn't some formula of Israel. If Israel obeys God all the time, then God has to give them power. No, no, no. Israel's disobeying. God decides to use Eglon to reach his people. Eglon is God's tool for lack of a better word. So, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, so often we tend to think of sin as certain specific actions. And that is true. Okay, There are certain specific actions. If I walk over to Devon and I steal his wallet, that is stealing, that is a specific act. And it is sinful, it is not good. And don't worry, I'm not going to steal your wallet. If you want to give it to me, that's Okay? I wasn't joking okay so um <laughs> oh, okay um, we so often think of these specific acts as if i just avoid these acts the problem is is that while that's true those acts are only sinful because of the fact that they are rebellion against god that rebellion against god is the key format again think marriage and think parenthood the the first sin was adam and eve Eating from the uh, fruit of the knowledge of the, excuse me, (laughs) the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That fruit wasn't evil. God had created it. He said that everything in the garden was good. He ended it by saying everything was very good. That fruit was good. The only reason that act was sinful was because God had said, don't eat it. God could say, don't eat green Skittles. It doesn't mean that the green skittles are bad for you. I hear people every now and then try to say, oh, it's because all sin is inherently bad for you. It's inherently bad for you because it's rebellion against God. That's the reason. Now, there's some sin that is bad for you in and of itself, but not all sin. The sin is bad for us in the sense that it's destructive for our relationship. To use my wife and I's relationship, which I use so often, if I hated Jane Austen, that would be destructive for my relationship with my wife. Is hating Jane Austen inherently sinful? No. Many many really good people dislike Jane Austen. If if my wife hated C. S. Lewis, that would be sin in and of itself. (laughs) Loves Jane Austen, yes. So, do you understand the difference? Though it's more this than it is the acts. It is adultery. That's why God was so ticked off. It is adultery. And it's actually said right in the scripture that we just read. It says, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal. Now, this is why this is important. When the Israelites came into the promised land, they crossed the River Jordan. Does anybody know the story of how they crossed the River Jordan? Or the Jordan River? Into the yep. The second their feet touched the water, it began to divide. God literally brings them into uh, the promised land by making way for them to, to pass uh, through the ground. And then, and then Joshua says, Hey, take 12 stones from here, put them in the center of the river, and take 12 stones from the center of the river and bring them out and put them. Does anybody want to guess where? Gilgal. Here's what the scripture says in the fourth chapter of Joshua. It says, And Joshua set up at Gilgog the twelve stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord Your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. They were supposed to take these stones and put them at Gilgal. And they were supposed to be a reminder of what God had done for them. And in the story we just read, they are now stones that have faces on them. Does anybody want to take a wild guess what those are called? Idols. I don't know if they were the specific stones. But a place that was supposed to be a place of remembering what Yahweh had done. And now uh, become a place of praising false gods. Adultery. Do you understand why God would be so ticked? It's not just like, oh my goodness, Israelites, you're eating the green skittles. It is, you are betraying me and you are worshipping another. You want an excellent example of it? You should read uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. And it describes God's feelings because Hosea falls in love with a woman who prostitutes herself. Who betrays him over and over and over again. See, that's what happens here all the time. Is in the book of the Judges. The the people of Israel who are God's chosen people. Are choosing false gods over and over and over again. That's why God gets so ticked. It's what we do. It's what you and I do. When we choose others or things or powers or ideas above him, we are are committing adultery. We are, are putting our trust in another when he's begging us to trust in him. For those of you who have spouses, if your spouse trusted someone else more than they trusted you and i don't mean on some specific action okay if i was working on a heater my wife would trust pete more than she would me that's because pete has expertise on that but if my wife trusted pete all the time more than she trusted me it'd be betrayal you understand why god would get ticked here so that's what's happening here in the story We're going to do a quick version of this. There's this wonderful thing on the internet called the Brick Testament where this guy is constantly uh, telling stories from the Bible via Legos. I would encourage you to go to it. So basically in this story, what happens is the people of Israel betray God. And the way God uh, deals with them is he gives power over to Eglon. Now, there are not a lot of times that we have specific descriptions in Scripture of people. But when we do have specific uh, descriptions of people in Scripture, it's because there's a reason for it. What is mentioned about Eglon? He's He's fat. Now, we hear that with modern 21st century ears. In the ancient Near East, what do you think that would have meant? I'm sorry, what? Power. Power and health. He would have been strong. He would have been well-fed and, and not just well-fed, but had the resources to be well-fed. And specifically here, the tribute that is being brought, the reference, the word that's used there, actually refers to tribute that is brought before a god. What type of, of offering is typically brought to a god in the ancient Near East? Food. Food. Animal sacrifices, wine sacrifice, this one is, is usually used referring to grain sacrifice. There's a really good chance that Eglon becomes powerful and big and strong because of the, the tribute that Israel has been bringing to him for 18 years. Now here's the, the thing, and here's where the satire comes at. This is meant to be funny at the same time. But they're not telling this like, oh, he's just a big guy. They're meaning, this is a really, really powerful guy who's become more than he should be because of his power. He's huge. And it has been because he's been eating from the offerings of Israel. And he persecutes the people and they cry out. This is my personal favorite one. Actually, that's not true. The next one is my personal favorite one. Uh, And again, as I mentioned earlier, they don't cry out going, Yahweh, we repent. We recognize that we betrayed you. They just cry out some of them may have been recognized and they were betraying, but it is not referenced in the sense of oh look the people of God repented people of God just cried out God loves to save his people sometimes we forget that and sometimes uh, maybe you don't but, but sometimes I do and I know people who do who we think we need to manipulate God you don't have to manipulate a loving dad you just have to cry out you don't have to manipulate a God who wants to save you. You just have to recognize that he wants to save you and cry out for help. So what does God do? He He lifts up. This is my personal favorite. <laughs> I think it's it's about as, as literal as you can get. He lifts up a deliverer. That's the story in a whole. whole And, and this deliverer, well, how does he kill, kill Eglon? Yeah, with a sword. But I mean, if you think, it, it's a rather deceptive story crafty's the nice word for it if this was our enemy think of how we would tell this story the only reason that that ehud is described in heroic fashion is because he's for israel if our enemy did this what would we say about him coward. yeah he's a coward why because he tricked the king hey he didn't he didn't go in in front if you read the story before this othniel is this great man who's described as god lifting him up and he just fought off the enemy Ehud is described as this guy who just kind of goes in and tricks everybody. He's specifically described as a left-handed man, which can have a couple of different, actually a few different references. You'll hear some people who say that he was, was probably uh, injured in some way, and that's why he's mentioned as a left-handed man. Probably not true. Don't know that. I don't know that it's not true, though. Scripture could be read that way, but I think you'd be twisting a little bit. Um, could be that he was just left-handed. Anybody left-handed in the room? Here we go. Okay. So, what? One out of, out of all of us here in the room. Uh, left-handed people are unusual, and uh, even in our own history, my dad was left-handed, and he tells stories about teachers hitting him with rulers to try and get him to write with his right hand instead of his left. For the longest time in history, left-handedness was thought to be a curse. There's another thing, and that is, he was a son of Benjamin. There's lots of references in Benjamin. If you read later on in in, uh, the 20th chapter of Judges, it's going to talk about how there were uh, thousands of warriors from Benjamin who could fight with their left hands. Why would that be an advantage? Shields, yes, but also you're throwing off the other person who's used to you fighting like this. Have you ever watched The Princess Bride? They fight left-handed first. And then they swap, and it's supposed to throw each other up. Everyone else was fighting right-handed. If you could fight left-handed, that was, it was an advantage. Uh, Benjamin was actually referred to by his father as the son of his right hand. So this could be a play of words. I don't know if Ehud was handicapped on his right arm, or if he was left-handed, or if it was just that he was a Benjamite and he could use his left hand. What I know is he tricks the guards by using his left hand. Anybody who was raised in the church ever meet somebody who talks about, this is my life verse, and they have this life verse that was supposed to really kind of point them. And, and they're always these really flowery things. Judges 321 was what I would always refer to them, because I just always thought it was funny. It was like, you know, my life verse should be, I'm following Jesus as well as I can. But if you're going to have a specific verse, that's great. And they would say, well, so what's your life verse? And I would say, Judges 321, which is... And Ehud grabbed the sword on his right thigh with his left hand and plunged it into the the belly of the king. It just always made me laugh because it just seems so out there. But the whole point is, is that the guards wouldn't have checked the right thigh because he wouldn't have been a threat. They would have checked the left thigh they might have given the right th- a cursory thing. But most people avoided using their left hand. And his whole plan was based off of that. It's really not a very heroic act when you think about it. Again, the only reason we praise him is because he's an Israelite. So, he kills the king. <laughs> this is where it gets into pretty graphic detail. And and it describes him uh, as as his his bowels emptying. I love uh, some of the older translations talk about the dirt that fell out. I mean, it it literally is you know all of this stuff down here that you're digesting. Blah. And his servants come to the locked door and they think, oh, he must be relieving himself. Why would they think that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of that graphic picture. Think of, have you ever, Well, all right, all the guys in the room, think of any middle school group of guys you've ever been around. And if somebody goes to the bathroom, and it's like, oh, I mean, that's what it's like. I mean, it even describes, they wait to the point of embarrassment. They are outside making fun of the king. They are outside going, oh, my word. Has you know, he crapped himself to death? It is just absurd. Now this is where it could be a sexual innuendo also. Uh, the, the Hebrew here literally says that he was covering his feet. That is most likely a reference uh, to uh, him using the restroom. That's the way it's usually used. It can also be used as a sexual innuendo. Which could mean Eglon, they thought Eglon was in there with Ehud... Or it could mean they thought Eglon was in there by himself. Either way, the story is still the same. It is an embarrassing moment for the king. The king goes from the most powerful man in the region to someone whose servants are mocking him outside the door. Do you understand why this is important? Eglon was thought to be huge. Thought to be strong and big. And now... He's the guy over there covered in his own crap. See, God didn't just save the Israelites, He didn't just save them from the one who was persecuting them. He turned the one who was persecuting them into an object to be made fun of and mocked. And that's not because He was some wimpy guy. So let's talk. There is this tendency we have sometimes to read Scripture and to focus on small details. And small details are nice and they're, they're fun. But we, we can forget the real point of the story. The real point of, in all of these stories over and over and over again is that God brought a deliverer. It's what He does. Our God absolutely loves to deliver His people. It is the story of his love. It is the story of his character. It is not just something that he does. It is who he is. And, and so often we can become enamored with the story itself to the point that we forget the specifics about it. To where we can make it to where we have to just go, Ehud's the greatest. Ehud is not described as a great guy. We know very little about him other than he's left-handed. That's about it. We're not even entirely sure that God told him to do what he did. If you look in that story, you won't find that God says, Hey, go and do this. What it says is, God lifted up a deliverer. Ehud did this. At the end of the story, Ehud talks to the Ephraimites, a tribe of Israel, and says, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. But that doesn't mean that God said, By the way, I want you to go and trick the king. I don't know about you, but I don't like to think that God's character is like like this, where he's just going to go in and just trick and deceive people. But it's obvious that he will use somebody who does that. If you read the story above this, you get an entirely different story. Oath is, is this great guy who fights the strongest king there and there is nothing negative said about him at all. And the rest of the judges we're going to read from, that's not true. Samson is probably the judge that's best known in the whole book of Judges and he's trash. He is not a good guy. And yet we treat him as a hero because in the end he does the right thing. But you read it and you really start thinking about it, you're like, I don't think I'd want to know him. He's a selfish guy who's just focused on himself and he's womanizing all the time and he's probably full of himself. The best hero in the book of Judges is one of the ones we know the least about and yet God uses them all. He can use your best actions and he can use your worst actions. He can use the, the guy or girl around you who is just following him with all their heart and he can use somebody who just completely denies His presence. Because He loves to deliver His people. He will lift up a deliverer again and again and again. And that does not mean that God will take away everything. I I pray with people in the hospital a fair amount uh, because of the fact that I'm a chaplain intern now. And I cannot tell you how many times people say, I, I need you to pray that God will remove all of this. And how hurtful it is for them sometimes for me to say, I, I, I will pray asking God to do that. But you do know He doesn't always do that. The stories of Scripture are not always Jesus enters the room and He makes everything Okay. The stories of Scripture quite often are Jesus um, enters the room and he asks you to do something impossible that you don't have the strength to do. And then what you find out is he gives you just enough to do it. He brings healing through those actions. But the people who are asked to do it don't know that at the time. I love the story where Jesus heals the blind man by, by spitting in the mud and, and making or spitting in the dirt and making mud and putting in his eyes and then telling the blind man to go wash that mud out. If you really think about that for a second, think of how cruel that is. If, if I have a good friend named Bart that some of you have met, he's, he's been here before. If Bart entered the room and I spit in the dirt and made mud and I stuck it in his eyes and said, now Bart, go wash your face off. I'm a jerk at that point. They had to trust Jesus. Jesus didn't go, you're healed, everything's great. He said, here's some dirt, go wash your face. He lifts a deliverer up, but so often it's just enough for us to make it through the next day. He loves to deliver his people who Betray him. He doesn't just hold our betrayal against us. He he wants us to cry out for him again. And then he comes in and he says, I'm there for you. See, that's what's happening here. Israel has literally betrayed him. You read that story again, and you're going to see those rocks over and over. They're mentioned twice. It's interesting that that uh Ehud brings the tribute to Eglon, and when he's leaving, he stops. At the rocks with the faces on them. I wonder if, if it's because. Uh, Ehud g- goes there. And God says. You see what my people have done? These are supposed to be rocks. That remind you. That you are following me. Because I brought you into this land. And now they are idols. Do you see what my people have done? I don't know that. Scripture doesn't say it. But it does reference that when he left the king, he stopped at the place where the rocks that were supposed to have been from the River Jordan were no longer there because they'd been replaced with idols. And he goes back and he kills the king. And it says again that he passes those rocks. Even when we betray our God, even when we deny him, he loves to save his people. It becomes so easy for us to focus on other things. Such as, there's this story, uh, there's a pretty famous comic strip, uh, a Peanuts comic strip, where where Linus describes over and over again, he says, I love my hands. With my hands, great things can happen. And he's eating a peanut butter sandwich. And, and he goes, with these hands, I could become an artist. And with these hands, I could make great buildings. And with these hands, I could save someone. And Lucy goes, you got peanut butter on them. See, it can become so easy for us to notice the small things and not notice the big things in Scripture. I will freely admit, I don't like Ehud. (laughs) He's deceptive. But God used him to save his people. The whole point of the story is not, hey, sometimes God will, will use you in weird ways. It is, God will save his people. Ehud's really not praised. We don't hear God coming, coming down from the heavens and saying, and by the way, this is my servant who kills in the toilet, in whom I am well pleased. No. But God uses the action to save his people. So, if you notice on the little graphic, hey, Elliot, if you notice on the graphic, I have stories of unfaithful. And it's because these stories happen over and over again where, where there is faithfulness and unfaithfulness in the midst of it. God is always faithful throughout all this. Again and again and again, God hears the cries of His people and He lifts up a deliverer. Matter of fact, if you want something fun, read the New Testament. Every, time, every story, He lifts up a deliverer. I just find it funny. But God is faithful there. And sometimes the people in the stories are unfaithful and sometimes they're faithful. But God is always faithful, even in his anger towards us. And, and I would love to tell you God's never angry at you, but I don't think that's true. I actually think if he's never angry at you, it means he doesn't care. See, even the people who, who drive like idiots, and by the way, did you notice that all of us in town apparently have forgotten how to drive in the winter because we've kicked into spring gear? Because I saw lots of close accidents today because we're supposed to be driving in good weather and we've forgotten. The only reason I get mad at those people is because I expect them to do better than that. But if I didn't expect them to to do better than that, I'd just be like, eh, they're from Wisconsin Rapids. It's okay. See, God faithfully loves us. Here's the other thing I want you to remember, besides the fact that God loves to save his people. And that is, sometimes God will use you to do the crappiest job possible. And it's still really important. I think we love the stories where the hero is the knight in shining armor, but Ehud is the guy who leaves a dagger in the belly of the king and dirt just flows out of his body. This is not a pretty story. I really think about it. If if you saw a movie of this, this would be a movie that Quentin Tarantino would do because he would just be like, oh, this is going to be awesome. The guts are going to be all over the place. This would not be some nice little cartoon. I mean, it looks great when the Legos do it, but if you really think about what's going on in the Legos, that's pretty gross. I think so often we think God's hero stories have to be nice and clean and therefore we quite often think church stuff has to be nice and clean. But the reality of it is is that most of what Jesus did was humiliating. And he calls us to follow him. If you actually think about it, everything Jesus did was humiliating. Because He's the king of kings and creator and he had to come down and be a baby. If you had to be a baby right now, you wouldn't be like, Oh, that would be fine. I want to sit in my own poop until somebody cleans me up. Nobody ever thinks that's just wonderful. God is the creator of the universe, and He had to come down and He had to be cleaned and taken care of by one of His creatures. That's humiliating. So, most of what He calls us to do, it, to be a part of Him delivering others, is the crappy jobs most of the time. It, it's stuff like painting that was done yesterday. Now those of you who were there you know this was not the best organized thing that, that has ever been done you know that at first nobody had an idea what was going on and it was still God's work because you were there helping people uh, who 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 needed help I've mentioned crappy we we, we are, are trying to do a nursery and trying to have it organized and and to, I need people who are going to just take care of babies who are going to spit up on you. Because the way we can have more babies is by having people who want to lovingly take care of those babies. Actually, okay, I guess technically speaking, that's not the way you have more babies. But, <laughs> but I'm not going down that route, okay? <laughs> if you don't know how to have more babies, talk to Pete, okay? Uh, don't talk to Pete. <laughs> I'll find you a book somewhere, Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I'll just stop. I need to just stop there. Guys, God wants you to be faithful. Because he's faithful. I know there are times where you are going through the crap, But he really is faithful to deliver you. And I don't mean by that that he's going to end the crap. (laughs) Usually what happens instead is he just gives you enough energy to take another step. So before I end, on what I I think, and I haven't talked as much about uh, some of the the details, but what I think is just a fun story. This is my favorite story ever to tell to middle school students whenever I do a a youth camp. This is the one I do with the middle school boys instantly. It's my first story because it's just fun. You don't have a lot of crap stories in the Bible. So before I end, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? I'm going to take that as a no. For those of you who got in late, I am very glad that you were able to make it and that you were able to drive safely. I hope the roads were not as terrible as as I think they might have been. Good, okay. (laughs) So, guys, remember this. God loves to deliver his people. You're going to see it again and again, I promise you, uh, over the next uh, eight, seven weeks, excuse me, that I will not be uh, telling the same sermon over and over, though I could. What you're going to see again and again is he loves to deliver his people. We're going to focus on different aspects of that deliverance, but the book of Judges is again and again and again. God's people betray him. They cry out. He saves them over and over and over. God will never get tired of saving you. It's what he does. It's his genre. <laughs> That'll work. And he wants all of us to be a part of saving others. And that means the crappy jobs. Sometimes it means the job you're most scared of. For some of us in the room, that might be inviting somebody. God wants you to be a part of that. And when you think you can't do anything, remember he uses people like Ehud. All of us don't have to be oath All of us don't have to be the hero who defeats the strongest enemy. Some of us are just the guy who sticks a stick in a big guy's belly. Let's pray and sing, okay? Father, please remind us that you love to save us. And help us to be a part of you saving others. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please, let's sing together. Cross before me the world behind.